Hello, everyone. I'm David Goss, and this is Josh Schneider-Weiler, and welcome to Soccer 101. We're going to be subbing in for your normal crew today. So yes, substitute teachers are here. You can get up, walk around, do whatever you want, yell at each other because our opinions don't matter, and it doesn't affect your final grade. Just kidding. This is going to be a fantastic episode, and we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to walk through what a transfer is in the world of soccer, how it works, why it's so complicated, And then at the end of the show, we're going to do something new and talk through a few of our favorite transfers of all time, because this is the game now, Josh. It's about transfers and transfer rumors. And then the secondary part is actually watching players. The the game is off the field. This is is the new game. So I'm really looking forward to doing this. Let's just jump right in, Dave. Let's talk about what the definition of a transfer actually is. As footballstadiums.co.uk states quite well, it's quite simple. What happens when a player who is under contract with one club moves to another one? The player's registration details transfer from one association football club to another, hence the term transfer being used. And in American sports, as well as Canadian and Australian, the buying club also purchases the player's original contract from the original club that he is being bought from. And generally, this is not the case in Europe. So this is a pretty big uh, distinction, you know, uh, where the player's old contract is terminated, and then they go about negotiating a new one with their club. Uh, So there are multiple negotiations going on at the same time, and we will get into that shortly. So let's start at the beginning. A team scouting network, work group of analysts, or maybe an outside agent and intermediary identify potential players. While scouting analytics have come a long way, You'd actually be surprised at the amount of players that are still presented by agents to their clubs. If a player is under contract with one team, then the other side needs to pay a release clause to get them out of that contract. The release clauses are almost always astronomically high. If you think of Neymar's historic transfer from Barcelona to PSG in 2017 for 222 million euros, that was the buyout clause that was triggered. Messi's, the rumor is, somewhere around $853 million. This is not the evaluation of what they believe that player should get. This is a fee so that no one can really trigger this because if the selling club wants to let the player go, then you get into a negotiation for said transfer fee. The team purchasing the player's rights must also then agree a contract with the player individually because as you said, Josh, the contract does not get moved, just the rights to negotiate with that player. This was an interesting fact that I found. In 2017, FIFA reported only 14% of global transfers had a fee involved. The rest were all free transfers. So while this feels ever-present, it really is the cream of the crop that this is happening over the course of Europe. If you want to hear more about free transfers, there's a Soccer 101 episode about the Bosman ruling that you can go to. There are also some other great episodes Uh, that Ryan, Joe, and Taylor have put together on super agents and loans as well, which we won't touch on as much because we're talking transfers. So Josh, how does the transfer work? So in a proposed transfer, there are often three key negotiations taking place at the same time, hence why these transfers are so complicated and difficult to do. The negotiation between the buying club and the selling club over the transfer fee, so that's number one. 
the negotiation between the buying club and the player's agent over the player's personal terms. That's number two. And the negotiation between the buying club and the player's agent over agent fees. That's number three. So we got a lot of moving parts happening at the same time. Um, And technically, the selling club must first give permission to the buying club to speak to the player regarding a potential move. However, in reality, uh, it's not exactly this simple. There will often be intermediaries that kind of liaise between the buying club and the player to gauge the player's interest before official permission is granted. And we'll talk about some you know, murkiness here and how it looks in reality. Yeah, so the Premier League rule states that a player under contract shall not directly or indirectly make any approach to another club without having obtained the prior written consent of the existing club who he is contracted to. So teams cannot discuss with players whether they have an interest in coming to this team to their side, whether they want them to. But teams need to know that if they're going to try and enter into a multi-million dollar negotiation for said player. And a lot of times for a selling club, they want to sell. So they want their players out there to do this. And you mentioned that murky area. For example, with Liverpool, there was the uh, accusation from Southampton of tapping up with Virgil van Dijk, which is saying that you're attempting to negotiate with our player before you've agreed a fee. Because there is this murky area, that's where agents and intermediaries are actually quite necessary. They can gauge interest from clubs, from players, from different sides without breaking those rules totally. And that allows teams to have the confidence to then actually try and make a transfer happen. All of this is happening in a gray area. And that's one of the things we see consistently. And I think you see with the image of agents. And we'll talk more about agents uh, later on, but they are vital to making these exactly. deals happen. Um, you know, and so we even saw it last summer with Jaden Sancho and Manchester United, you know, and you see that, you know, term, personal terms have been agreed, right? So it's clear that the he wants to go and he's already sorted out a personal contract with Manchester United. But obviously the two teams have to come to an agreement as well. And so that's where it, it really gets uh, quite, um, as you said, and uh, murky. Um, so when does the money get moved and how is it paid out? This is a really complicated thing. Even once everything has been agreed, once a transfer fee has been agreed. So when a newspaper states a you know, headline for a quote for a transfer fee, it might be $35 million. That doesn't mean that $35 million is necessarily going to the club. Um, there are all sorts of clauses in that that might be incentives or add-ons is what they call them in football. So let me give you an example. You know, when Liverpool sold Coutinho to Barcelona for a roughly for roughly 142 million pounds a few summers ago, 36 of that 142 were considered add-ons. So if you just deduct that, you're looking at a base fee of about 106 million pounds. And so what were those 36 million pounds in add-ons? You know, so a lot of this is appearance based. So roughly every 25 matches that Coutinho would play for Barcelona, Liverpool would get an additional four and a half million pounds. If Barcelona qualified for the Champions League that year, Liverpool got an additional four and a half million pounds. Same with the year after, if they qualified for the Champions League again, an extra four and a half million pounds. And if they won the Champions League, 
that's another four and a half million pounds. So there are all sorts of these add-on clauses um, that Barcelona would have to pay Liverpool on top of that 106 million pounds kind of base fee. And a lot of these uh, deals have sorts of add-ons in there. I mean, they might not usually be that high, but um, it is common to have these little add-ons into deals. So after all these negotiations are concluded and agreed to, there's still one thing left for these teams to finally do. And that is that they need to report this transfer into the FIFA TMS. Uh, Both the buying club and selling club need to input more than 20 pieces of information, including the transfer amount, the type of transfer, the registered agent, and more. At that point, they're awarded an international transfer certificate. This needs to be done by the end of the transfer window deadline. If not, the deal doesn't go through. This is what happened when Manchester United tried to sell David De Gea to Real Madrid in 2015, but it ended up unsuccessful, which now, incredibly, is not the first line of Edward Ward's CV <laughs> because of how poorly the Super League went. As Josh mentioned, the number you see is not the number that is always paid right up front, but the teams can, if they want to, pay the entire fee up front, or they can negotiate over the course of time how the money is going to be paid out. That is a massive part of the negotiation is the team may want $8 million for a player, and another team might come to them and say, well, we'll give you $2 million over four years, over the course of four years, or we'll give you $6 million, but we'll give it to you all up front. That is a large part of the negotiation that, that these teams go through. So, Josh, we're here. We've scouted a player. We've used agents and intermediaries to discuss with the players and teams whether or not they want to make a move. One team has approached the other team. They've agreed a transfer fee, and now they've inserted all the information into the FIFA TMS. That was easy, right? Don, transfers are simple and we move on from here? Not at all, Dave. Actually, there's even more (laughs) to it. And this kind of explains why transfers are so difficult. You know, we're talking about multi-million dollar deals in, you know, many countries often. Uh, And so things can get really complicated. There are a lot of different issues at play. Besides what we talked about, you know, we have the transfer fee negotiations, the agents commissions, the contract renegotiations. There are also other things to look at. We have image rights deals, um, you know, so like essentially commercial contracts uh, that clubs have to work out with the players if they want to use those players in their commercial deals. You have work permits, right? We're talking about labor issues, third party, uh, international third party ownership, uh, co-ownerships between Italian clubs, um, you know, loan deals with options to buy, sales with options to buy back, part exchanges, and who knows what else. I mean, we didn't, we've, we've talked about most of them, but there's even a few more things. Um, this isn't like American sports where there's one uniform league and everyone operates the same way. You know, we're talking about, you know, more than 20, 30 countries uh, that are often involved in these transfers. Um, so there's just a lot of different ways that these happen. And as they say in the business, the devil is in the details. And those details uh, are worth millions. So any one of those things can kind of bring down a deal. So yeah, it's really difficult. One of the things that greases the wheels of those difficulties, as I mentioned earlier, is agents and intermediaries and their ability to operate between everything. Uh, A quote from someone 
who worked in a technical side of a team was simply put intermediaries do things clubs can't like approach a player without his club's consent, which is technically illegal before you make an official approach and offer hefty sum for a player. You want to know how much it will cost you in terms of wages and contract length. There's something the intermediary can do on your behalf. He or she can also make the initial approach with a club as well to get an idea of what the asking price might be. It works in reverse too. If there's a player you might want to sell, whether to upgrade that position or to raise cash, you might employ an intermediary to get the word out. Or sometimes his agent will be doing the same. It helps the club maintain plausible deniability towards fans who might not want to see a star player moved and towards the player himself, since nobody likes to be told they're being considered surplus to requirements or simply not good enough. Not to mention the fact that the minute you stick a for sale sign on someone, his price eventually drops. For players, there's a lot of value in having these agents and intermediaries as experts in this space. The Secret Footballer, which is a great blog out there of a former player who we don't know who they are, hence the name, says there's a reason that they have value. I've played in every league and every league is different. I don't know what the highest earners is in each league. I need someone that does. Agents are valuable for their networks and relationships and the doors they can open. Football is a vast trade system and these clubs really aren't that big. And so these agents host a lot of the work that's needed to be done, Josh. They're agree- they're negotiating those image rights. They're negotiating these fees. And at times they're even acting as the operators for a lot of these things. I talked to someone in a front office who said a lot of times they will pay a transfer fee through an agent because the agent is a more trusted and known entity for their accounting and banking sides than clubs in foreign countries who are operating through banks that they've never heard of or they've never used. So agents at this point really are vital to every transfer. And like everything else in the transfer process, it gets even more complicated with kind of agents and their role. Uh, It's important to state that agents can act on not just the behalf of a player, but also on behalf of both the selling club and the buying club, right? We mentioned there are three parties involved in this, and an agent can act on behalf of any of those parties involved, uh, which is what makes it so complicated. Um, And so just kind of to give you an example of how they can act uh, in the role of any of these three parties or all of them. So um, it was reported that one of the reasons that Romelu Lukaku signed for Manchester United from Everton was because the club uh, were willing to pay his agent, Miena Raiola, a substantial agent fee, uh, whereas Chelsea were not. So in that Lukaku transfer, uh, Raiola would have been acting for Lukaku in the contract negotiations with the buying club. And he also would have had a separate agreement with United to act on its behalf in the transfer negotiations with Everton. The only thing to point out here is the only thing that needs to be done is it needs to be stated publicly that the agent is operating for all parties uh, and then it makes it fair. So serving many masters, an interesting way to operate, but money coming in from all sides. It's nice to be in super agent. I highly recommend listening to Joe Larry's Soccer 101 about these super agents, Mino Raiola being one of them. Yeah, exactly. You're totally right. And, you know, it should be said these are not as common, um, these types of deals where uh, agents uh, act in all three uh, parts of the negotiation. That is not common. However, according to sports lawyer Jake Cohen, in reality, an an agent acting for multiple parties in a transfer is common, at least when English clubs are involved. Um, 
So it's not common for them to be involved in all three, but at least in England, it's not uncommon for them to be involved in multiple, uh, you know, with multiple parties. Um, you might be wondering how much do agents get paid? Um, so typically an agent earns between five and 10% on a deal, but it's usually closer to 5%. Um, and just to give you kind of an example of how that works, um, you know, specifically with England, you know, so let's say a player is paid 2 million pounds per year. The agent will be paid for the work that he does for the player and for the club. So he might receive 2.5% or 50,000 pounds from the club, uh, from the work that he's done, and then 2.5% from the player, $50,000 pounds. Um, so it could be split up that way. And uh, one of the reasons that they have the club pay uh, for part of this as well is that for tax purposes, it's actually better for the club to pay than for the player. So a lot of this is actually paid by the club um, and not the player uh, because of tax reasons. And that's why you'll also see, you know, some of these uh, when you see those graphs of like why the transfer, uh, why the agents fees are so high at these clubs. This is one of the reasons. Um, now, it should be stated that an agent acting on behalf of a selling club can get a you know, percentage of the transfer fee. You know, we, we kind of mentioned that earlier. And at the moment, FIFA is trying to put a cap on this at 10%, um, whereas now, you know, obviously it can be above above that. A agents uh, can really have a, a varying role uh, depending on the deal and the transfer that's happening at that given time. So we mentioned that teams don't hand over 150 million euros to another team when they sign a player. It's paid out over the course of time as a sell-on. Uh, it's also calculated for inside the team's budget over the course of the contract that the player signed. This is amortization over the course of the deal. Let's take an example. A club signs a player for, let's say, $10 million. He signs a five-year contract. That contract totals $15 million, so roughly $3 million per season. The transfer fee is then spread throughout the duration in the club's financial accountants of that deal. So in this example, the $10 million transfer fee, $15 million salary over the course of five years. That means the player is costing the team $5 million per year. Now, if that player signs a contract extension, they can amortize the transfer fee over the life of those added years, which means it's less per year, even though they're now pay paying that player more money. They can also negotiate in raises over the course of the deal and so that they can shift the money around. So there are strict accounting mechanisms and universal practices that every club in Europe's top eight leagues and many clubs beyond that adhere to. However, these practices are absolutely essential to understanding how clubs actually calculate player costs and budget for new signings. We also have to mention here, Josh, that we talk about transfer fees very often. Uh, you want to bring a player in, this is how much they cost. But for a team, they have to look at it and say, it's the added on of the contract and salary as well. So I saw most reports that a Champions League player is making roughly about 10 and a half million pounds a year. If you add a 35 million uh, pound transfer fee, but you have a five-year contract, that means up front, you're saying as a club, we're going to give this player roughly 85 to 90 million pounds to play for us. So it's more than just the transfer fee is what the team is getting into bed with as they go into it. Now for players, once they're under contract, that team controls their rights. 
but we mentioned buyout clauses. There are also release clauses. Josh, you want to tell us a little yeah, bit more? Yeah, so uh, buyout clauses and release clauses are different, and it's important to kind of know the distinction. Um, you know, let's just start with release clauses, as these are really the most common that we'll see in football. You know, essentially, release clauses will oblige the player's club to sell the player to a club who meets the terms and conditions specified in the clause. Now, the conditions can vary, you know, on these release clauses. And, you know, sometimes a release clause could be particularly high if it's within the same league. You know, a Premier League club, for example, like Chelsea, might not want to sell a player to another player, uh, to another club in the same league. So the release clause in that league might be different compared to, uh, you know, if uh, Bayern Munich is approaching them. So release clauses can be different. But essentially, it's giving the player the option to leave should that amount be hit. And so this varies and is different for specifically in Spain, where they have what's considered buyout clauses. Um, and in Spain, every player needs to have a buyout clause. Um, the player must literally buy out his contract at the stipulated amount. Um, although in practice, really, the purchasing club you know, pays the amount via the player. It used to be a more complicated uh, process because of tax implications. Now, you might be wondering why, um, you know, why would clubs give a release clause to players? Uh, that doesn't seem to make sense. Why wouldn't they want to negotiate? Um, so really, it's actually a player that wants it in the contract, and they, fo- they might take less money um, so that it is in the contract mm-hmm. because they want the freedom to be able to move should a bigger club come in for them or just really any club in general. And, you know, just to give an example of uh, who might have wanted to have one, for example, Wilfred Zaha at Crystal Palace. He couldn't move even though he wanted to move uh, because he didn't have a release clause in his contract and uh, teams would have had to pay, you know, a, a huge sum of money. Whereas if he had a release clause that was slightly less, uh, he might have been able to to leave Crystal Palace. So that's kind of the importance of release clauses in football. All right, this is complicated, Josh. Why don't we why why don't we just trade Karis Levert for James Harden and make it simple, right? Why do I have to go through all of this? Why can't we just do a swap deal? Uh, and if you think about American sports, players are traded, the contract holds, and then gets sent to a new team. So when LeBron James moves. Uh, I'm using all NBA references because the Knicks are slightly good right now. So if you're listening to this in the future, you know exactly when this is dated because it'll all probably go downhill quite soon. Uh, but as we said, USA, Canada, Australia, countries like this, you you trade players and you trade the contract. But that's not the case in the world of soccer. And so you're acquiring the right to negotiate with that player and you're acquiring the right to have that player officially play for you in competition. You still need to negotiate a deal. And that goes into all the things you mentioned earlier, Josh, the image rights, all those things. So if you were to have a swap deal, both teams would still have to negotiate all of those pieces and it could fall apart at any point. And so it's not easier or safer to do that. And most of the times when we believe there are swap deals, they're actually separate transfers that have just occurred between the two teams at the same time. Spoiler, we're going to have our favorite four transfers coming up. One of mine is technically a swap deal. So I'm falling into this trap that I'm saying don't believe in. But for the most part, it doesn't exist. For example, Wayne Rooney and Lukaku, uh, the belief was that their clubs 
had swap deals. That's not true. They were separate transfers and then other players moved in the opposite direction. Yeah. And so earlier, if you remember, I said there are all of these sorts of hurdles that uh, are put up before a deal can get done. And I said, et cetera, after you know, image rights, for example. Well, we're going to talk about two of the most common clauses that are often involved in deals and can you know make or break a deal as well. Um, and that is buyback clauses and sell-on clauses. You know, buyback clauses and transfer agreements are used primarily to give a selling club the security of being able to repurchase, you know, usually a promising player at a set fee should the player excel in the future. And some high-profile examples of that include Alvaro Morata when Real Madrid sold him to Juve, and then they were able to bring him back. And Casemiro, also from Real Madrid, um, when he went to Portugal, and then they brought him back. Uh, and this is uh, most commonly used with younger players. And for example, last summer, you know, Liverpool um, reportedly put one uh, in place when they sold Ryan Brewster sh- to Sheffield United. You know, if they excel, they do really well. You want to be able to bring them back to your team and have them do well for you. The reason buying clubs are kind of okay with this is they might be able to get a player they wouldn't normally be able to get uh, for a slightly cheaper fee. You know, so what are sell-on clauses? Sell-on clauses are if I sell a player to you and I put, you know, a 10% sell-on fee. So if you sell them in the future, 10% of that fee will come back to me. And so obviously, if you sell a player for 50 million pounds, and there's 10% sell-on fee, I get a nice kickback of 5 million pounds that I wouldn't have got before. Uh, so those are really nice ways of kind of guarding your investment. you know. Would, and that is you know, the buyback and sell-on clauses, a great way to kind of protect your investment, uh, especially with younger players, as I said before. And I'm told you don't have to text the team and chase them on Venmo for the money. <laughs> Most teams know that it's already in the contract. And when they sell the next player, it's assumed the money will be transferred through in a timely manner. Otherwise, you report them. I wish that I operated that way. And I definitely wish some of my friends operated that way, especially when we go to the bar. I don't mind putting my card down, but you know, everyone, sell-on fees are coming back around. Let's finish up with this before we get to our top transfer. All of this revolves around transfer rumors, right? That's where we started this whole thing. That's where the fun is. That's where the insanity is. And that's where a lot of us hear all of these terms uh, and a lot of talk. So transfer rumors are actually a vital part of this entire process and this entire ecosystem. Um, Most things have a source when you see a rumor. Now, it could be the interested party that wants to buy the team. Uh, For example, a club or agent may tell reporters on background that they had interest for player X from clubs Y and Z, or it may not be true. And the reason it may not be true is that it could be an attempt to just drum up interest in that player. Sometimes a club will want to put information out there to keep their fans happy so that they don't feel like no player is going to be acquired. uh, And it shows that they're trying to do something. Sometimes a selling team will be the one that will put out the idea because they want that player to want to go. At some point, uh, this was a great example and a, an old story, but Argentine striker Gabriel Batistuta, of course, a legend in the summer of 2000, Roma were looking for a center forward, but were quoted what the club thought was an insane price for Fiorentina's Batistuta, more than $40 million for a 31 year old striker. Big number back then, even bigger than it is today. Club owner Franco Sensi decided it was far too much. So Fabio Capello, Roma's manager at the time, told a newspaper 
that the Batista Batista deal was on the verge of going through, even though Sensi had said no. When it appeared in the paper the next day, Sensi's phone started to ring off the hook with well-wishers congratulating him on showing so much ambition, fans saying his name in the streets. He was suddenly a hero for breaking the bank, and eventually he did actually agree to the deal, and Roma won the title the next year. So it could be coming from inside the house, Josh. The call could be coming from your own side. And there are so many ways that this can work. So I'd say take every transfer rumor with a grain of salt, but there is some salt in there. Yeah. And, you know, everyone's trying to use public opinion to kind of to their own benefit. And, you know, as uh, Gab Marcotti pointed out in this great piece where he talks about this, there are a number of reasons why any one party in the deal wants to let this information out publicly. It's really to use the public as leverage or uh, to put pressure on someone in the deal. And uh, it's, it's, it's a crucial part of this engine and it can drum up the price. Um, it can also decrease a price um, by several million dollars. So it's really a really important part. And I mean, you're talking about transfer rumors. I just want to get into the our four favorite transfers because I am juiced making this list was like a real, real pleasure for me. And I've been thinking about little else for the last couple of days. Uh, So let's jump into it. All right, Josh, bringing a lot of heat, a lot of excitement, a lot of energy. If you feel that way, then I think you should start. We've collected. So we said we were going to do four our four favorite transfers for whatever reason. That means not free transfers, which, as I said before, you can go listen to uh, another Soccer 101 episode about what that means. And not loans, which you can also go listen to another episode about. I put together like 12 and some are free transfers and some are loans. So I broke my own rule right out of the gate. But I'm going to try and contain myself. But you've got this energy. So you go first, Josh. What's your number one? Okay, my number one. And I'm going to do this one first just because I know you're going to love this one, Dave. This this is right up your, your alley. You're going to love this. And this was the first one that came to my mind. Uh, and it was the first transfer that I could honestly say... Uh, I fell in love with. Um, I'm a Liverpool fan, um, and I, I know you can guess it, Dave. It's Fernando Torres mm, to I Liverpool mean, yeah. for 25 million pounds, and that transfer is just great and one of my favorites because it really transformed uh, the two clubs that were involved. Uh, Torres went to Liverpool, and they—I mean—they were already a good team, obviously under Benitez, but this helped them contend for the league and you know, really pushed Manchester United, you know, one season. And one of the other reasons why I really chose this, and I did this for each one of my transfers that I'm going to give you, is they kind of are emblematic of a wider trend. And mm. to me, this was uh, emblematic of a wider wave of Spanish players coming mm-hmm. to England. Now, I'm not saying he was the first one, because uh, you already had the likes of Cesc Fabregas, Xabi Alonso, and Mikel Arteta in England. But to me, I think this was a really big breakout moment that really led to a lot more uh, Spanish players coming to England like Juan Mata and David Silva and so many others that would have huge implications in Europe. And I mean, I I know he was a personal favorite of yours. You know, you can tell the audience a little bit why you loved him so much. Um, Yeah, go, go for it. Well, so one, I would say I agree with you because all the guys you said weren't Spanish national team players when they went to England. Mikel Arteta mm-hmm. was never even one, right? So Fabregas was an academy kid where Torres was because he started in the 06 World Cup for Spain. I w- spent that summer in Spain. Um, the coach that I worked under when I was quote unquote playing soccer in Spain 
was an, a former Atleti player. And so I was this diehard Fernando Torres fan. El Nino, I thought he was everything, the great striker. Um, and he went on to be that for Liverpool. Uh, mm. I can remember being in a bar, in a pub in England, watching the Arshavin four-goal game and sitting with people. And all of us just kept saying, it doesn't matter because Torres is going to score the other way. And that's like one of the parts of that game that kind of gets overlooked is he was unstoppable at that time and was just as good. Uh, peak Suarez or peak Torres or peak uh, I, Salah? I'm, who do you take? I, I'm, I'm not taking, I'm not choosing either of them. I'm just saying that it was my first love of like a striker. Okay. My first love as a striker. And the, the, I was actually talking to my mother-in-law who I'm at the house of right now. She's a huge diehard Liverpool fan. And I was telling her, I was like, you don't really see many strikers like him anymore uh, who really like play on the back shoulder uh, of the you know defender. And I haven't seen too many Torres like versions in recent years. Um, you know, maybe you correct me if I'm wrong, but like he I, he was my first love. So I'm not going to try to compare because you can't compare first loves. Um, yeah. But his peak was was truly amazing. And uh, also just as a Liverpool fan, like the way he tormented Manchester United Suarez um, and Salah have not tormented United like he did. So extra pops. All right. So so let let me go with my first one now, which has less um, heart and love as yours. But it's kind of one of the things that I love about this game. So and it was the first one that came to my mind, actually. And I had to go back and research it multiple times. And the reality of it is it's a bit murky. But in 2013, uh, FC Porto sold James Rodriguez and Jean Moutinho to Monaco. For 60 million euros. They reported that they sold James Rodriguez for 38.5 million euros and Jao Moutinho for 21.5. Other reports have those numbers in completely different places, some as low as single digit million euros for Jao Moutinho. The reason being that Jao Moutinho had been acquired from Sporting Lisbon by FC Porto with a sell on fee. And so Porto packaged the two players to Monaco and then lessened the amount Moutinho got brought in for so that they could lessen the amount of the sell-on they had to give to their rival Sporting Lisbon. And that is everything. You're a bigger club. You've already bought their best player. You're now selling him for money and you're so petty that you have to find a way to keep them from getting money. Also, they both go into a great Monaco team. Monaco has a couple good years. James Rodriguez is a phenomenal player. I love Jao Moutinho as well. But this deal, when I heard about it the first time, I was like, this is what these people spend their time thinking about. And this is what these people do. And so for me, it's the greatest transfer of all time. I mean, it's it's just great because there's so much pettiness in Portuguese <laughs> football. And you just kind of like went right into the core of it um, in that transfer, which is fantastic. And un- actually, also on a side note, like Martin- uh, Jao Moutinho to Wolves might have been like one of the low key best buys in the last like three or four years in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went on for like peanuts to um, Wolves and have, have, and has played in most of their games and has been really quality. So uh, you know, still living, uh, it's still playing quite well. So I think we've started on a pretty good high. Josh, you want to keep us rolling? Definitely. Uh, and, uh, you know, on that same mix of, uh, you know, rivalry trades, you know, before this, I'm just going to say, you didn't tell me that free transfers was off the table oh, before. Okay. So this is a free transfer. Um, and it's probably the biggest <laughs> transfer in recent Italian history. And that is Andrea Pirlo, from you uh from AC Milan to Juventus on a free 
And I remember when it happened, I, I just didn't understand it as an American sports fan. You know, if you're in American sports, you never let your rival, your, you know, best player or one of your best players go to a rival. And yet it happened. And like, I, you know, in Italian football, this just isn't crazy. This actually is like kind of par for the course. And as we know, you know, now how big that transfer was. I mean, Juventus up until this year pretty much hadn't lost a title since he had left uh, AC Milan. And when he left, they won the title. And Juventus at that time hadn't been to the Champions League in a couple of years. And then they essentially just went and became a dynasty since he came there. So a huge trade. And Dave, like, do you want to hear some of these other great players who have moved between Juventus and AC Milan and, you know, even some of the other top teams in Italy? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so here are some other great examples. And <laughs> Wait, can these I are just all, throw this in yeah. real quick before you start? It also blows my mind that Pirlo came through Inter Milan's academy and mm. played for them for three years. So he played for all three of them, which yeah. I don't think you're allowed to do, but you're about to prove me wrong. Well, yeah, that's actually totally not true. There have been other players who have done that as well. Uh, Roberto Baggio played for Fiorentina, Juventus, AC Milan, and Inter. Uh, Gonzago Iguain went from Napoli when he was killing it to Juventus. Leonardo Bonucci went from Juventus to AC Milan and then back to Juventus. <laughs> you know, Pipo Inzaghi went from Juventus to AC Milan. How did that work out? Fabio Carnavaro went from Inter to Juventus. I mean, and there are literally are countless others. I, I didn't even mention all the ones that had gone from Juventus to Inter and Inter back to Juventus. And then did I even mention, Dave, one of your favorite players, Edgar Davids, AC Milan to Juventus? Like, Legend. I mean, the lesson, as always, is never trade with your rival. I don't know why they do it in Italy so much, but, you know, we're seeing it this year with Atletico and Barca with Suarez. Um, yeah, just just don't trade to your rivals. Don't do don't, it. Don't risk it. Um, well, that that ties me perfectly into my next one, um, which is Luis Figo from Real Madrid, from Barcelona to Real Madrid. We mentioned buyout clauses in Spain. So Figo's at the time was 62 million euros, which was a world record for a transfer fee when Real Madrid bought him out. He was the start of the Galacticos movement. And it also gave us some of the great moments in world history. So the first time he returns to the Camp Nou, he stops taking corner kicks because he feels so uncomfortable being that close to the fans. And then famously, the second time he returned, one of the fans threw a dead pig's head onto the field while he was playing because that's what they thought of him. Uh, it worked out, I think, in his favor. So the mm. best part is he won the Ballon d'Or in 2000, the year he moved. So if you think about a summer transfer window. Most of that was for his play at Barcelona, but he was a Real Madrid player winning the Ballon d'Or. He went on to win the league twice. And then, of course, the Don comes and he wins Champions League as well. So talk about moving rivalries and crossing that barrier. I, it was pretty unprecedented when he did it. And then I think his reaction, the reaction to him shows you why other people, they're not as, as, as forgiving, I guess, in Spain as they are in Italy. No, no. I mean, it's, you know, they're, they're, I think Italy is a kind of like a one-off country in that regards because it doesn't happen that often in the Premier League either. I think it's all the red wine. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the Amaro. It calms you down. <laughs> um, I'm going to go in a completely different direction. 
completely different direction. I know you didn't have this one on yours, although it actually involves a Real Madrid player. So this one's actually kind of a three for one, Dave. Uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit. It's Samuel Etu, Roberto Carlos, and Christopher Samba to Russian team Anzi Ma. Mahaksha Shakala. I don't even know how to pronounce it. You but you know the one I'm talking about. Pronunciation, John? No, honestly. No, I didn't. I'm so sorry. I'm also After notoriously our terrible. Spell at... in Russia in 2018, we were basically Russians. I know. I know. I mean, um, I guess I'm going to have to go back to, you know, my <laughs> Russian uh, language school. But um, so just for a little bit of background, for, if you guys were not clued into what happened here. So in the summer of 2011, um, you know, Anzi essentially just like went on a spending spree and they bought Samuel Etu and Roberto Carlos for uh, a lot of money. Uh, I think the Samuel Etu was like 28 million euros um, at the time or um, some astronomical fee and uh, pretty much the same in wages, like 20 million in, in wages per season. And then in the winter window, they bought Christopher Samba, who if you are hearing this name and you're like, who the hell is that? He was this like six foot five central defender for Blackburn who which just kind of had a, like a two or three year run where he was just crushing it with like Sam Allardyce um, and I think Mark Hughes as well back in those like heyday of Blackburn. And and the reason I mention this um, is because it kind of was a little bit of a precursor to what happened in the Chinese Super League. And it, in terms of like, you know, uh, a smaller league wanting to buy up um, players with a lot of money and seeing what happens. And this was a disaster for Anzi. They didn't really make anything of it. Christopher Samba, lo and behold, was kind of a train wreck for them. Or not train wreck, but like just, you know, I mean, you pay that much money for... He just said, um, get me out of here. Yeah. So like, you know, they essentially paid 40 million pounds or, or euros rather um for these three guys it didn't work out but it was just i i just thought it was kind of emblematic of what happens before china the chinese super league spends obscene money on like oscar hulk ramirez tevez and most of that was were failures as well so uh one uh, detail that you left out in that whole thing was that club is located in chechnya and <laughs> so i am pretty sure the players lived in moscow and then they'd fly them into their own city day of games because they refused to live in chechnya which was pretty violent at the time. So yeah, yeah, going to China is a unique experience, but it's at least safe where you're living. Uh, so that's an interesting one, Josh. It ties me back in because I thought this is what you were about to say. Uh, I said swap deals don't happen. 2009, and I think part of, for both of us, why these deals, I think a lot of them are in the past is you, you got to see it develop, right? It takes a while to understand who won, what it was. Um, so... Barcelona wins the Champions League with Samuel Eto'o leading the line. They want to treble in 2008-2009 and decide that they need Zlatan Ibrahimovic. They just need him. Couldn't explain to you why. Definitely can't explain it to you now. So they give Samuel Eto'o and 46 million euros to Inter Milan for Zlatan Ibrahimovic to come back in the other way. And what happens? Eto'o becomes the only player in world history to win back-to-back trebles for separate clubs as he wins a treble for Inter Milan, scores two goals, in either cup, in both cup finals in Italy, and then of course wins Champions League with Inter Milan going forward. And I love Samuel Eto'o, and I just love everything about this deal. Massimo Moratti, the Inter president, said, "I'm not sure if the deal that brought Eto'o to the club was my 
best piece of transfer business ever, but I really think it was a great piece of business for us. Eto is fantastic. I do not want to take anything away from Ibrahimovic, but for everyone, it was really a great deal to get Eto. Samuel is truly extraordinary. Yeah, man, you got paid to bring in a player who won all the trophies for you, and Zlatan went in the other direction, and it got worse. So this is an example of a swap deal. Now, Samuel Eto did agree his own new deal with Inter when this happened. So as we were explaining before, but uh, this was one of those that you look back and you say, what were you thinking? Yeah, what were what were they thinking? Although I think, and you know, don't quote me on this, but I think there were like some issues between Eto, uh, Eto and uh, Guardiola. I think like it stems from that. And I remember there was like a, he gave like a pretty big yeah. interview a few years later about it. Um, I'm, I'm failing to remember. But yeah. yeah. He basically so, said that he couldn't talk to Pep anymore, but that's on Pep. Like, this is a great player who's already on your team. You should be able to figure out how to deal with that. Uh, I, I left out that Eto scored in the Champions League final for Barcelona right before they sold him to win against Manchester United. So he was pretty useful whether they liked him or not. God, you know, because it's interesting. Mine, there's there's a threat of Barcelona through a, a lot of yeah. hours, which is not there intended. Is. I mean, we didn't talk about this before we we started recording. Um, and mine is Usman Dembele. Um, uh, a few years back, uh, when he signed from Dortmund um, for over a hundred million euros, um, and the reason I included this um, was to me, it really kicked off the holy cow, we can make a ton of money from the transfer of young players. Uh, This is the current Dortmund model. And I'm not saying that this model didn't exist before this, but teams really discovered, oh my God, we can make a ton of money out of this. And actually maybe this is a viable business direction going forward. And you can see that, um, you know, in a lot of different examples. I mean, Jaden Sancho last year, I mean, his rumored fee was crazy high. Uh, we saw that with the Jao Felix deal from, uh, you know, for uh, Atletico Madrid, Victor Osimhen, uh Just this kind of became the the new way a lot of clubs operated, and I think in a lot of it comes down to the Usman Dembele. And the crazy thing is, if we had recorded this last year, we would have said it was a total bust. But Dembele has actually had a bounce back season. Is one of the reasons that. Barcelona could win La Liga this year. So it goes to show you that you got to be patient sometimes with these deals uh, because you never know how they'll work out in the end. One of the things in reading about all of this and, st- and you know studying up for this was, I think the Neymar transfer to PSG, you can probably see a lot of the seeds in what actually ended up being the Super League attempt from that. I don't think there was an expectation that a team could buy out at that number. And then the blowback is Barcelona as as... Dembele was one of the signings they used the Neymar money on. They wasted that money and it basically almost ruined the club. So you can see a lot of of what was forced to happen. Um, Okay, so then I'm up to my last one now, right? Yeah. Which I have some that I'm not going to go with. One was a loan, which I don't want to break my own rule. Uh, One that I just want to mention is Carlos Tevez was a West Ham player, went on loan to Man U, and then there was offers from Man U, Liverpool, and Manchester City play for and he chose not to go to Liverpool because he felt that he didn't want to go to a rival of Man U. So instead he went to Manchester City and won the league for them, which I just think is such a funny way for that to play out. But my fourth transfer is going to be one of the greats of all time, N'Golo Conte. The the smile, yes. the man himself. Yes. Uh signed from Kine in France for 8.1 million 
pounds by Leicester in 2015. This transfer was so unknown and under the radar that in Leicester, the day of his signing, the headline above his signing was that Charles Arangi wasn't interested in coming from Leverkusen to Leicester and had turned down the deal ahead of Conte. Didn't start in his first three games. And then, of course, wins the league in his first year. Is probably the most pivotal player. And talking about release clauses, so he signed for 8.1 million pounds. The release clause was 32.2 million. So that shows you the proportions of what teams put in these things. But of course, by 12 months later, he was worth every single penny of 32.2 million pounds. Chelsea initiated that, triggered his clause, brought him in, and then he wins the Premier League with Chelsea the following year. I don't know, one of the great players in world history, one of the great smiles in the world game. And uh, Leicester City nailed it over the course of that transfer window, of course. Riyad Mahrez and Wes Morgan, Danny Drinkwater and Jamie Vardy, all them as well that they uh, hit on. So that's my fourth one, Josh. You had to bring in Conte. That is a very good choice. And obviously, we're still seeing the excellence of N'Golo Conte getting man in the match in the recent semifinal for Chelsea against Real Madrid. And he'll be playing in the Champions League final. Uh, those are three. Th- those were four great transfers you gave there, Dave. I mean, I still think I won this just by making a Christopher Samba reference. Yeah, because I guarantee you didn't hear that coming. And you know, it's it's just a great little nugget for all those uh, you know hardcore fans out there. No better way to close out than on Conte. I could watch him celebrate winning the World Cup or other people celebrating around him while he laughs uh, all day and over and over again. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope you learned something. Um, if you have better transfers that are, you know, better troll jobs by teams, uh, better flips, all those things, feel free to, to message us. I'm on Twitter at Empire. And then my last name, Gas, G-A-S-S, otherwise pronounced Gas. Josh, how can they get at you? And I'm on Twitter, my last name, uh, at Schneider Weiler. Um, so please let us know. I'm curious what what transfers you guys uh, thought really moved the needle. Um, it's been a real pleasure uh, doing this uh, episode uh, with you, Dave, and uh, really diving into the world of transfers. And your regular scheduled teachers will be back next week. Thanks so much for listening and have a good one. <laughs>